Welcome to the realm of magic and mystery, classic horror and sci-fi. You are now entering the House of the Unusual podcast with your hosts, Eddie and Joe. Hey guys, what's up? What's up everyone? We got Todd, Dave, and Eddie back today. What's going on guys? Hey everybody. Hello. Okay, everybody's ready to start another way? Yeah. Another beautiful day in the neighborhood. Ready? Let's go now. Hold on. Talking about being pro now, huh? <laughs> Todd, I thought you'd be dancing now. What happened? I didn't have any sound. You didn't have any sound. Well, guess what? Did you guys have any sound? Did anybody have any sound? You have to tap for sound. Yeah, I, I had sound on type. my end. Yeah, no, what happens is it doesn't matter if you have to type. The people that are listening can hear it. Not us, but they can hear it. Yeah, so if anybody's out there in podcast land, it was our our new video introduction. And I guess you guys just hear the kind of like the uh, the sound effects to it. But it's just the uh, the introduction to the podcast. Uh, with Joe, Eddie, and Todd, and we'll, we got our guest back again this week, uh, David from the Atocha uh, Treasure. And what's going on, guys? Todd, what's new well, on the monkey this- world? Uh, <coughs> uh, everything's good in Sea Monkey World. Well, here's what we got. Okay, we got the last week. Apparently, Mister Dave here. He lights a candle that's 400 years old, and I didn't notice it, but uh, nobody else but my friend Joe noticed that a box behind me fell down. So I think somehow, Dave, you brought the curse of the Atocha to me. I you have anything had, you could say? Well, yeah, I actually had a few people comment that when that candlestick was lit for the ceremonial first time in 400 years... I don't know what exactly fell, but some items fell off your shelving there. Well, nothing else but the life eyes ghost. Look at that. My friend <laughs> fell off the thing, you know? Maybe he came to life this time. I don't know. Well, if anything was going to fall off, a ghost is most appropriate. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> so, Dave, what's what's new on your end, brother? How, how's the uh, treasure hunt business going? Treasure hunt business is great. Um, I was looking forward to tonight's uh, episode with you guys. This is becoming a uh, fun Wednesday event. <laughs> Except for when we keep Todd up past his bedtime. Then he gets cranky. <laughs> I, well, yeah. I, the, the, the thing is that Todd has to put away his sea monkeys. And the problem is he puts each of them to bed. Yes, and it takes a couple hours. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it has to make sure everybody says good night, you know? Yeah, it, it take, takes me about 45 minutes to tuck all those little ones into their beds. Read, yeah, read them you, a nice bedtime story. and Yeah. <laughs> don't, you, don't you have any of those sea monkeys that might be in law enforcement that helps you put each of them in bed in time? Make sure. Uh, that would be Joe's territory. I, I think all my I, – I like I was telling Todd a little bit ago, I think all mine might be dead. I, I – I took a look at them again today, and I added some more water. I let the water sit out all day to, um, you know, get room temperature, and I added about it because it went down about two inches or so, maybe an inch and a half, and I added the new water, and I'm looking in there, and I could see, you know, like the, the egg shells or whatnot floating around. I could also see some dead sea monkeys floating around. I'm like, oh, man, so I, I'm, I'm going to wait a few days and see if I, you know, check every day a few times and see if anything's in there and... Yeah. See what might be going on. I'll tell you what, Joe. I mean, I've had a similar thing happen, and I've just set the tank aside and checked back on it a couple weeks later, and the whole thing was like swarming with life. So yeah, don't don't give up on it. No, I'm definitely, I'm definitely not, because I, I know when we talked about it last time, I was ready to give up, and you told me to wait, and then, you know, a few days later, I seen a few little guys swimming around. So, you know, maybe they're just sleeping, or they're in the temple of Todd. You know, worshiping at the time when I was let, looking. So. Yeah, let, let, let me figure this out, though. Um, you know that I think the solution to this is uh, Dave. He has those uh, radioactive uh, bases. 
if you were to actually put on those radioactive bases, you were to put a, you know, any any anything there, they'll probably regenerate back to life. I'm glad you brought that up, by the way. It was bothering me for a week. So the name of that glass is called uranium glass. That's right. That is the one I bought, uranium glass. And I, I had said Vaseline glass, which it also is called that, which is the correct name for it. But I couldn't believe I just had it on the tip of my tongue. Uranium <laughs> glass is that green colored glass that if you find it at a goodwill, let's say it's, you know, 49 cents, you bring it home, you put shut off the lights, put a fluorescent, and it glows with the uranium that was used for the uh, making of the glass color. And sometimes they look um, yellowish, and sometimes they look greenish. But either way, that it's called uranium glass. Well, I, I had a problem. I bought one on eBay. I paid a little bit like $30 for it. I didn't pay $0.49 cents for it. But um, <laughs> when I had it, the problem was is that I went, you know, turned off the lights. It's true, it glows. But then when I went to bed, the lights were still on. And I'm like, why is it so bright in here? So I kept going around looking and I couldn't find anything. And then when I looked in the mirror, I was glowing. It's <laughs> <laughs> a possibility it's a little more dangerous than people think, huh? I think I uh, think so. The uh, No, what I was going to say to you guys is, you know, what we were talking before in the show here, I know coincidentally you took a candle that was 400 years old and you put a light on it. I, I I don't believe in this stuff, so I know that this was probably just speculative and it happened. But Joe here was scared to death. He told me that his wife had to put him to bed for two consecutive <laughs> nights because he was afraid of what he saw. So what? Yeah, what I, I even had to have Todd give me a call and sing me a lullaby one night. So <laughs> I, I fell asleep, and, and his voice is so soothing when he's yeah. I was gonna say, he's, you're desperate if you've reached that level, Joe. <laughs> when, when he's whispering in the phone, singing lullabies to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. but I will tell you. I will say this about that candle and that that little mishap. I do think it, I do think it's a little bit strange because the last time on the show we were also talking about all the souls that were probably attached to all of the artifacts from those vessels and it was from like um Dave was saying it was from like all of the slave labor that went into like building everything yeah. all of those lives were lost and then the lives that were lost actually on the ship when the ship sank I think you said that everybody perished but five people. That's correct. That's correct. And then then they were ultimately put to death. They were court-martialed. For having something in your pocket, imagine that. You said this. Yeah, they had. I'm always uh, showing things here. This is a small Atocha emerald. And this this is what they had in their pockets there. And they were slaves, and obviously slaves weren't supposed to have emeralds in their pockets. So they were put wow. to death for having that little piece of, of luxury and surviving. That, Correct. That's crazy. Correct. And that's, you know, I, where, that's where the court-martial came in, where literally he said, as Mel Fisher used to tell the story, he said, what are you bothering me for with this court-martial? The captain made me carry on a 60-pound box of emeralds and that's where we started to find emeralds and we didn't know why they were down there. Right. And that's, yeah. that's a true story. You know, you know, when we, when you were talking about that on the, uh, the last episode, and if uh, anybody missed it, you could go back. It was last week. Um, you know, you were talking about all the, the people that, that died on the, the boats and all the slave labor and all that. And, you know, I, I was just thinking back on how much, you know, how many slaves were used to, you know, in the mines and how, how many resources went into, you know, getting that emerald or, you know, mining that silver and gold and all that. And for all of it to just be, you know, all of a sudden lost, it was kind of like all of that suffering and all that just, you know, went right down the chute. Well, you know, it, it's sad to, you know, it's sad to hear because there's probably people that, were worked to death in those mines, you know, for that little bit of, you know, gold, silver, or, you know, whatever precious stones, and just to have it lost like that at sea. So all that work, all that death and suffering was kind of well, like. Well, I mean, 
You guys are talking about all the spirits and souls. Look at this. They each hold one of my cards, and I'm able to do this trick. Look at this. I'm, I'm telling you, man, because there's no room for them in this place. So pretty good chart. Look at that, Eddie. It looks like a slinky to me from here. No, no, no. It's all uh, it, it is. It's, uh, he no. taped some cards to it. No, no, no. They're, they're the regular cards. It's just I'm very good at it, you know? I've yeah, learned throughout the years. You see, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm the best at this, man. It's called magic, you see? It's a slinky with cards taped to it. Now, now Todd, Todd is dying to know what it is. Okay. That's one thing I like about Todd. He's very observant. In fact, he he noticed the box fall off. And I it, I think for a second, I think he was hoping it fell on me. Because inside, I know he wanted me out of the business here because I was bothering him at the time. So he was hoping, man, it could have been the light bulb, not the the box, you know. <laughs> but anyway, no, what I'm saying is the thing is that's very interesting when we talk about slaves and all that is that all that stuff in the in the 1600s and stuff with the time of the pirates, here you guys find a treasure. You guys find a ship that apparently is located. I don't know if you want to give us the exact location. I'll be more than happy to go and investigate the area, see if there's anything more. I mean, 60 feet of water. I'll just go with one of those scuba divers and have my wife uh, from the top, you know. He'll have the little floaties on his arms. No, like yeah, little, <laughs> and little, trust me, for a bar of gold, I'll, I'll, I'll go 60 feet. But um, how was that? How was your experience, Dave? What can you tell us on that? Well, I just wanted to touch on, because, again, we're, we're dealing on, again, a specific subject. And this is not to, you know, dwell on this, but... You know, it should be mentioned there's some really fascinating, true stories in the finding of the Atocha. And here's one of them. And this is seen on the National Geographic documentary. Mel Fisher, uh, his son, had found nine bronze cannon. And Fisher was looking for bronze cannons, by the way, because they would have serial numbers and dates and weights and those things would be uh, able to man uh, match to the manifest. So he would know that he had the Atocha. So after his son found the nine bronze cannon, they went back out to sea because they were really excited about, you know, they were on the mother load site probably where all the treasure was going to be found. And about a week later, after his dad had given him a $10,000 bonus, the ship took on water and capsized. And Mel Fisher's son, daughter-in-law, and another diver named Rick Gage perished, died, drowned in their sleep. And these were young people in their 20s. So, you know, the National Geographic so eloquently says... Having given up the Atocha, the sea took back Mel's sons in retribution for having found the Atocha. You know, what's funny is that you, you hear that a lot in the, these, you know, sea stories from treasure hunt, hunting that, you know, they're taking stuff out from the sea, but the sea will always take something, you know, back in, in return. So that's, you know, that's pretty interesting that I didn't know that you know, happened with, I don't know too much on the Atocha, but, you know, that that kind of jives with a lot of other stories, you know, you hear about treasure hunting or people going out, you know, catching an abundance of fish or something, you know, and you hear all these calamities that happen. It's, it's really weird how it's, how it usually always plays out with the sea. Well, a, a good one isn't if you, if any of you guys watch the Oak Island Treasure, you know, it says six people have died a seventh must die before the treasures. <laughs> and six people actually died doing it. In fact, what they don't tell you on the television, well, they do tell you in the television, but in the process, the people that are doing the show had, I think, two or three deaths already. One of them was the, um, the son of one of the owners of Rick Laguinis, I think, partner. I think he passed away, uh, you know, not that he had, but I mean, some people have said because of what's going on with the treasure, you know, because it, I mean, you know, I don't personally believe that stuff. I think it's all folklore, but there's a lot of people out there that take it very serious. I, I uh, think there's, there's definitely something to it. 
Yeah, I can, I can, um, if it's all right with you guys, I just wanted to tell you a quick couple of instances that happened with me. And again, I don't necessarily believe in this. Somebody's um, got some clicking there. I'm trying to hear. Not me. <laughs> not I. It was going fine and then it started clicking. Okay, go ahead. It's the ghost. It's the Atocha ghost. It's clicking. I think so. Or it's your radioactive uh, uranium glass. Yeah, I do. Move your move your glass away from the computer. It's <laughs> clicking. <laughs> okay, it stayed now. I think somebody. I wonder if Todd, you're the one. It's always you, Todd. <laughs> We're gonna go on mute and see if it does anything. Yeah, it stopped. Stop. <laughs> it's you, Todd. It's you. Always the the team. <laughs> <money. Yep. laughs> All right, we'll keep Todd on mute. And go ahead, uh, Dave, with your with your stories of what happened to you. What? Well, Todd, when you when you want to jump in, just unmute it. Then you know we'll we'll know you're on with the clicking. <laughs> yeah, just just let us know in Braille that you're interested in asking. Yeah, a there question. you go. <laughs> so, um. Here's, here's, you know, some things that, you know, are fond memories of mine and they're, they're fond memories because everybody who talks about a treasure hunt or watches a National Geographic, all they ever do is show the beautiful scenes of us fanning and bringing up gold bars with some beautiful music in the background. And, you know, you don't see the hard work. You don't see the the sweat. You don't see the, you know, all the stuff going on behind the scenes. But I can tell you of real instances, and, and I'm just going to tell you, and then if you want to tie it into, you know, you're over the Atocha site, that's fine. If, if you just say it's a random happening, that's fine. But here's a real example. So the boat I'm living on is called the Bookmaker. And I have a cabin, small. I live on a, I sleep on a foam mattress, you know, that, that a thick one-inch foam mattress. It's not a bed. It's a bench with a foam mattress on it. That was my <laughs> cabin. And certainly not luxurious, no air conditioning, no running water. And it's very hot. It's very humid. But I did have a fan above my bed just off to the side and the fan was very weak and it it you know it really didn't blow you know cool air it just was on and I was good enough so make a long story short I'm I'm sleeping one evening and I wake up and I smell fire you know let's not kid ourselves. You can, you, you know what fire smells oh, like absolutely. smoldering something. And I literally clicked the light on near my bunk and I looked at the fan and the fan was on fire. There was literally fire. Oh, wow. <laughs> so because I was in my twenties and I guess I was fearless, you know, nothing could happen to me. I took my hand and I grabbed the wires that were exposed to the Ooh. fan and I ripped them out of the wall, I guess you'd say. And it literally left burn lines where the wires were in my hand, but the fire went out because the electricity. Show me your had... hand again. Show so... me your hand. Okay. <laughs> so literally, you know, it burst into flames. Well, right after that, another peculiar thing had happened. I was now safe from the fire, and I remember I was in bed, and I, I was scratching my legs. And for those who have weak constitutions, you should turn off the podcast for a moment or two. But I was scratching at my, my ankles, and I turned again, as I said, light on, and literally there was a black cluster at my right ankle, and I didn't know what it was. I, I just knew it scratched, and I went to scratch it, and the black cluster 
went away. It disappeared. That's really weird. I know. Until I saw one of the black clusters, which is all I knew, and I grabbed it, and I looked, and it was a little bug. And when I opened my fingers, it disappeared or jumped away again. And then I got another one, and I squished it, and turns out it was fleas. Because when Mel Fisher's son, the next morning, I told him about what I had experienced. Here's a kid who grew up living in the Florida Keys on boats. Again, I'm a Queens, New York kid. <laughs> I don't know about fleas and, and, and water. And you know maybe they're in the water, around water, boats, whatever. So make a look very short. Up above us was a cabinet where you would, you know, the helm steer the boat. And a, mm. a cat had gone in there and had given birth to kittens oh, while wow. we were in port before we went out to sea. And sadly, in the heat and without getting water or food, the, the kittens passed away. The kittens oh. died. And what happened was certainly fleas were attracted to the... The, the bodies of the, the kittens and they then subsequently came down to my cabin and proceeded <laughs> I guess to eat my foot or the stead skin or whatever fleas eat and there you go I had fire on board my vessel with my fan and I had a, a, a flea uh, infestation I, I thought you were going to say because sometimes when you go to the ocean especially by the beach. Sometimes, you know, you got your legs there and there's this little microscopic things. No CMs. No CMs. Oh, my gosh. They bother me. And, uh, you know, you're like, where the hell is this coming from? And they do that. They come out of nowhere. And that's what I thought you were going to say, that out in the ocean you had that stuff. But, I mean, you had fleas. Well, we had fleas, and, and, and they are sort of no CMs, as you're describing. Um, just quickly, if we got back into port. I literally went to Home Depot, and I remember uh, there were these bombs that you literally hit it, and it starts spraying a, a mist inside the the room if you had them in your house. And I literally put about six of them <laughs> inside of the boat and closed the door, and literally... I think the Coast Guard came when we were in port because there was smoke coming out <laughs> of the boat and billowing up. My theory was I was going to overuse the pesticide to the point where no fleas could possibly survive, you know, being in the cloth or whatever material. So I really uh, fumigated the vessel Kim removed the, the sadly, the, the dead kittens that were in there. Um, but but that was uh, an instance of where, again, you know, out at sea, over the Atocha site, fleas, heat, uh, <laughs> fans on fire. And they don't show that or talk about that on National Geographic. You know, they, Dave, if I could jump in real quick. Sure. You, know, you, you make a great point there because especially – you know, in today's world with, with social media, you have all these social media platforms and you see, you know, people doing well or doing this and that. And, you know, you get a lot of problems with these, you, you know, younger kids and even some adults, too. They'll look at it and they'll say, well, I want to be that. I want to do that. And then when they try to, they're they're let down because they don't see the the journey to get to that you know, section, you know what I mean? That there's a lot of sacrifice. There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of work involved to get to this part where they only see the end part. They never see, you know, the journey part. And, right. and I, you know, that that's a huge, you know, issue in, in today's world. So it's, you know, that's great that you're sharing that with us to, you know, to know that it's not all, you know, emerald and gold and, you know, all this other stuff that well, you know, there was a lot of work and a lot of stuff that went into, you know, your guys' final result in, in into where you guys ended up at. Well, it, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, one of the things I want to ask you, though, when, when you're there, 
and you do the diving, do you do it all in one day or you keep coming back for different days to, do you guys bring up all the treasure at once? I mean, if it is 35 tons as you have stated or so, the TV says. You know, again, Joe just alluded to something that's fantastic. Every one of us individual divers are different people from different places and different mentalities. So what I'm sharing with you guys here today on tonight's podcast is like the behind the scenes, <laughs> true stories of the Atocha treasure right. salvers story. These are not typically published and or known about, but here's an example when you're talking about, you know, lifting the treasure from the Atocha. We all knew the treasure was found. It was put out by Kane Fisher. The boats gathered over the site, and immediately Kane wanted to bring up the treasure. They didn't want him to do that because the archaeologists wanted to map everything, but he couldn't care less. It was, you know, <laughs> 16 years of looking for it. He found that he wanted to bring up some silver bars and celebrate. Exactly. Why would you? Yeah, I know. The, I, I, I would have the same exact thoughts and I would do the same thing. Mm -hmm. But me in particular, I was like wanting to be a Fisher family member. And by that, I mean <laughs> the Fishers were the CEOs and the sons of the CEOs of the company. So the Fisher children would always, if you brought up a gold bar, you'd hand it to Kane and he'd be like, hey, let me shake your hand. And you were handing over a $150,000 gold bar to the guy. It belongs to him and his family and the investors and so forth. But you don't know how that affects you until you actually do it. You actually find things and then hand them over. And I'm not saying I would ever think of stealing something, but I'll tell you, <laughs> when you find something like that, you're like, whoa, you know, it's like, you know, this is a lot of money here. And then you hand yeah. it over to somebody and it's like, well, thanks. But where I was going with that was I was literally trying to, do as little work as possible because I don't know about you guys, but I'll, I can do one, two, three and ask you what you would do. So if they said to you, Hey, put on a tank and go down and lift those hundred pound silver ingots into these, you know, baskets. And then we're going to lift them up and, you know, do that for six hours straight and then tomorrow we'll start again early at five in the morning and do that again and just do that, you know, for as many days as it's going to be for us to bring this stuff up. Well, some people say I'm in and I'm all for that. I'm, I'm into heavy construction, hard work. And other people like me, when we were in port and we knew that they were doing that work, I was trying to hide out. I enjoyed looking for the Atocha, but I didn't need to do the heavy lifting. <laughs> My theory was they were a lot bigger, stronger guys. Let them do the heavy lifting. So Kane Fisher would knock on the top of the, the boat where I had a porthole, and he would always say, hey, wake up. What do you think this is, the Holiday Inn? <laughs> so we would go out to the Atocha site, and again, you know, if they didn't, specifically say they needed me to go over the side and lift the items. I was fine just being there, photographing things being brought up, you know, doing all the ancillary work and stuff like that. Teamwork um, makes the dream work. So let me so yeah. it wouldn't it wouldn't be like you bring up all these bars and then you go over the side and they say, how come your pants look so heavy? It must be the water in them. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I couldn't I couldn't imagine the feeling of diving down there, picking up one of those heavy bars, bringing it up, and then handing it over to somebody. Not saying that I would ever steal anything like that, but I'm saying, you know, I, I couldn't imagine the the emotional toll that would take on somebody to hand over that much money after doing that much effort and just to hand it over to someone and say, Hey, Hey, great job. Go, go back down there and get me more. 
what you had to say to yourself, or at least what I said to myself was, you had to buy into knowing who you are as a person. And if you know that you're not a thief, then you don't even question, you know, what you're doing and what you will do. Um, but you also had to say to yourself, the Fisher family spent millions looking for this vessel. They lost children. Oh. They worked for years. They had admiralty claims. Mm-hmm. If you respect all the hard work they did, and you knew you were going to be getting a piece of the action at the end, they always said the divers never stole anything because they always knew they were going to be getting a piece of the action. Yeah, but we knew we weren't getting millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars, but the Fisher family was going to be getting millions and millions did, and millions of dollars. Did any of you guys get any of the gold bars right. or just the silver stuff? Yeah, like I said, every diver and boat captain had a different percentage and how long you were there for. All of these factored into what you would get. But they did what's called a printout. At the end of 1985-86 division, everything that was found was given a point value. And then you literally got your number of how many points you're going to get of a Tocha treasure. So one guy who got the same amount of points as another guy, one guy may have got one item. Maybe his whole printout was one item. And it was a half of a, a gold bar. So there you go. There's your, your whole division. And another guy got 67 pieces of eight and a wow. silver bar and, uh, and some copper ingots. So why were there so many differences? Well, because that half of that gold bar was equal in value to all those individual silver coins. Right, right. So... Everybody got the same share out unless you were a longtime boat captain or you were a diver there for many years or whatever. But that, that's how it worked. The, the people who were most happy were people who got silver coins because they were easily saleable. The people who were most unhappy with their division is somebody who got, let's say, a really big emerald. And then that was valued at $600,000. And then you went to sell it. And you guys have made the joke on three episodes of when I say a $600,000 emerald, (laughs) you go like, hey, Todd, could you lend me the money? Hey, Joe. uh, I'm still waiting for my check. I'm I'm waiting, man. (laughs) Nothing happened to me, man. And, And Joe says, I can buy a lot of collectibles with that. So, Oh, yeah. Basically, you guys are just like the you know the the public. If if I have a six hundred thousand dollar emerald to sell, that's a hard sale to find you know a buyer. That, I, I would send the six hundred thousand dollar emerald to Eddie, and he would send me a package from the House of the Unusable with. No, 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 brother. Those are worth the. The six hundred thousand as he's floating away in a. No, you know, no, 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 no. I would send. I would send you House of the Unusual Chinese money. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. It, it works and it's good and, and it's from China, man. You can't beat it. <laughs> I would pay you in full. <laughs> so if they did get a, um, say they got an emerald, I, I don't even know how, what would you do with a $600,000 emerald? Like how would you exchange that for real money? What would be the process to that? You you literally gotta get it appraised and and get a GIA you know certificate talking about what's the value of that, and sadly, the value of that emerald could be eighty five thousand dollars. That's what the Gemological Institute of America might tell you that emerald is worth. Mm-hmm. But when Mel Fisher gave it to you, he said it's worth six hundred thousand dollars because it's historical from the Atocha. So did you really have a $600,000 item or did you really have an $85,000 item? And the worst part about it, and it's talked about in one of the divers who wrote a book about it, I told you guys the IRS wanted 50% of whatever your oh, earned yeah, sure, income yeah, yeah. 
So yeah. when when they received a six hundred thousand dollar emerald, the IRS came knocking at their door and literally said, "For 86, 1986 calendar year, you received a million dollars." And one of those items was a six hundred thousand dollar emerald. They couldn't sell it for six hundred thousand, but they had to pay three hundred thousand dollars in cash and taxes wait, on it. Wait, wait, How wait. The heck would that one, sec- work? <laughs> one second. You're saying that if the emerald, let's say Mel Fisher said it's worth six hundred thousand, they would base it on that. They're not gonna base it on the actual appraised value. The appraised value was six hundred thousand. The appraised value, but the actual value, if you go, is less, right? So you have to pay based on the appraised value or the actual value? Well, in life, I always say the actual value of anything is what somebody's willing to pay for it. Right. So if you have an appraisal of 600000 but you can't find any person who wants to buy it for 600000 it's appraised yeah, yeah. at six hundred thousand, but no, it's no, not worth no, no, six hundred thousand. No, but I, I don't want to. I mean, I, I I don't know if I got lost here. What I'm saying is, imagine, you know, <laughs> in the house of the unusual. No, yeah. what I'm saying is, when you had, let's say, you had a diamond. They gave you not a diamond. They gave you an emerald. And and Mel Fisher says, I think it's six hundred. You go get it appraised. It comes back at eighty five thousand. What I'm trying to say is, what do you pay taxes on? You pay taxes on what Mel Fisher said. Or you pay taxes on what the actual, you know, piece what Mel what Mel Fisher said. There, by the way, I wasn't part of this. There was a lawsuit against Mel Fisher by some investors and divers, and they said this: "You're giving me a coin, a silver piece of eight from the Atocha, and you're telling me that this coin is worth twelve hundred dollars." And then the people who got the coin and they lived in Omaha, Nebraska, they went into their local coin shop and they said, I got this Atocha coin. I want to sell it. And the guy in Omaha, Nebraska said, I'll give you 150 bucks for it. That's what they're (laughs) worth. That's what they sell for here in Omaha, Nebraska. And Mel Fisher said, that's not what I sell them for. I got cruise boats coming right into port here in Key West. People are walking through my museum and they're paying me $1,200 for these things. So when Mel Fisher went before the judge, the judge said, Mel Fisher, show me receipts that you're selling these coins for $1,200. Mel Fisher showed him a lot of receipts that a lot of people were buying them for $1,200. Every one of these that he gave you, if it was a grade one, was now worth $1,200 in your division. If you could sell them for $150 and that was it, that's your problem. Go sell them for $1,200. I do. And, you know, I think, you know, Eddie and Todd will agree with this because we're all collectors in, in some respect is that, you know, you could find, you know, say you find a, a you know, I'm a big comic book collector. So, you know, usually I'll, I'll shop around and, you might find the one book here for 10 bucks, the same book here for a dollar, another one here for $5, but it's only that, that book is only worth what someone is willing to pay for. You know, we run into all the times you'll go to shows or something and people will say, well, I seen this sell for a hundred dollars here. And you try to tell them, well, no, it's selling for $20 here, $30 there. You know, it's only worth what someone's going to give to you. And a lot of people have a hard time understanding that they think that, well, this is the this is the set price, and this is what it is, and you know nothing else. They don't understand that if no one's willing to pay that that amount of money, it's not worth that. Well, that that's eBay for you. You know, good example. I see things on eBay that people price like, uh, let's say, like this, uh, Todd. It's called the electric deck. Okay, Todd, Elect- electric deck. You see, um, he's on mute right now. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. He's trying to he's trying to stay away from it. Well, anyway, what I was going to say with the electric deck, um, they price them. You know, you can get them for six, seven bucks, and then you have magic shops that tell you nineteen ninety five, twenty dollars for the same thing. You can buy an eBay for six bucks. That wholesales for like a dollar fifty. You know what I'm saying? Yep. So it, it all depends. They have. There's a lot of people that the price varies, but the problem is just like what you said, uh, Joe. 
a lot of people don't understand that just because you think your thing is valued at 10 grand doesn't mean it's worth 10 grand. It's what people are willing to pay for it. Correct. You know, so I'll, I'll give you a perfect example, Joe, because, you know, talk about comics. I'm having a midlife crisis. All right. Yes. That's what I'm, we like to hear. <laughs> I'm trying to put back together my, I told you this in episode two, I think it was. I'm trying to recreate my 12 comic books that I had as a kid, which I sold in 1986 for $6,000, all 12 of them. Uh -huh. Well, uh, uh, Dave, you told that us. You should tell the story here real quick so Joe knows. Because you told me and Todd, you didn't tell the Yeah, the you know what? I, you didn't tell me. I, I think I was signed off when you told the comic story. That, that is correct. So go ahead. Tell the story. Yeah. So. Even Todd nodded. Yeah, Todd nodded. Yeah. So I'm totally at this exact moment trying to recreate my youth, which is basically a midlife crisis to some degree. So as a kid, I would go to a friend's <laughs> house down the block. And we would trade comics, just like you're a kid, you trade baseball cards. And I'd go through his comics in 1969, and he'd have a 1962 issue of Amazing Fantasy 15, uh -huh. the, first, the first appearance of Spider-Man. <sighs> and it was in 3.5 condition now, as they would call it. And I would want that book, and I would give him a stack of Richie Rich and classic comics that today are worth $3 each. I'd give him a stack this big. Uh, and my friend would say to me, you're such an idiot here. Take this book. You're giving me a hundred comics uh, for only one. I said, yep, I will give you a hundred comics for that book. I got amazing fantasy 15. I went to my next friend's house. I gave him a stack of comic books that big for Hulk number one in 4.0 condition. Uh, Man, in, in 1973, my mother took me to the. Um, no, I'm sorry, 1976. My mother took me to the Commodore Hotel across the street from Madison Square Garden. I said, "Mom, please, I've never asked anything of you. We have no money. I know it, but please buy me Fantastic Four number one. It's right there. It's in near mint condition. It's a hundred dollars. Oh. Go to go to the Overstreet Price Guide." Look in the 1976-1975 price guide in near mint condition. Fantastic Four number one is $100. That's the price. That's what dealers were glad. See this? It's FF1 in near mint. Give me $100. I give it to you. So I put together 12 comic books. FF1, 2, and 3. Amazing Fantasy 15. Spider-Man 1, 2, and 3. Um, Hulk God. number one, two. I had um, Avengers God. one, two. Make a long story short, where I'm going with this with you is this. I look up today in the Overstreet catalog, the price guide, and my book is said to be worth like $30,000 in 3.5 condition, Amazing Fantasy 15. I want to buy that book but I'm not paying $30,000 for it. When I sold it in 1986, the guy gave me like $2,800 for it. And I know it's appreciated, but here's the problem. Everybody on eBay, for example, who has it for 30,000, when I look at the ones that sold, never has any sold for 30,000. So their asking price is full Overstreet book price right. plus they're putting on additional money because they're saying it's going to do nothing but keep going up as it has every year. Yep. So if you want this book, this golden, I'm sorry, the Silver Age classic master, you know, the, the, the most valuable Silver Age comic, you're going to have to pay $30,000. Well, how come somebody doesn't sell it for 19 or 18.5 or 17 or 15? That's a realistic price. <laughs> do you, do you yep. want to do you want to hear a story that'll make your your guy's stomach hurt and everybody out there in podcast well, video land? Listen, listen to this one. A, a buddy of mine. He's in his he's in his late seventies right now, and he's a he's like us. He's a big collector. Well, in the early he he was trying to remember. He said it was the early seventies. Him and his wife were visiting uh, an antique shop 
while they were on vacation. And there was a copy, he said, in pristine condition of Action Comics number one. $3 million. The guy wanted $400 for it at the time. And he was going to buy it. And his wife talked him out of it because she said, save the money. You know, we have the kids and this and that. That's just too much money to spend on it. And he said it was in immaculate condition, $400. And what they, Hakes was, I think it was Hakes just sold one the other day for like $4.2 million in, you know, I think it was 9.6 condition. He says every time he sees it, an action go for that, he goes, his stomach just churns, well, man. Well, your stomach needs to turn when you hear what Dave sold his collection for. How much you got, Dave? 6000 in total in 1986, <laughs> which, by the way, was the guide price because, for yeah. example, when the kid who owned the comic book store who bought my FF number one in Near Mint, me and him looked at the, the price guide and it said, that book is $900 in near mint condition. He gave right. me $900 in crisp $100 bills. And I was mm-hmm. a genius. Because, uh, $900. For a second, I was, uh, oh, the ghost took your voice. I'm, yeah, I had a call coming up. I, I'm a genius. I, I sold it for $900. And I bought it for a hundred dollars, so that's pretty great investment, right? Well, you know, you, you you know, people didn't really. I don't think people really thought the comics were going to shoot up like they did. Well, you know, because they really started, you know, shooting up around you know the early nineties. But prior to that, well, you know, they they really weren't going up that high or, or that much. I mean, people knew they were going to be collectors' items, but not to the extent like they hit in the nineties where they were going for tens of thousands, and you know. <laughs> eventually millions of dollars. I want to let Eddie jump in, but I, I'll tell you exactly what happened with me. I bought them for nothing or traded for them and spent nothing. And then I bought one for a hundred dollars. So selling them for 6,000. You made, was, a, you made a killing. I made a killing. I, I was, yeah. the, I so was you, a, a genius, but, but here's the problem. Literally, as Joe said, after I sold them, they started to encapsulate them, and then they could be sold at auction like Christie's and Sotheby's, yeah. and the market skyrocketed because the number one thing which I didn't know that was holding comic books back was the oldest thing in the business was Joe wouldn't buy Amazing Fantasy 15 for me if I said it was in fine condition because when he received it, he thought it was in good condition, not fine condition. Right, so right, there, was, right. there was no market. Once they started encapsulating them and now they could be sold and everybody agreed that if PCGS or whoever the grading company is says that this is a you know 4.0 graded comic, then they could be sold at auction and everybody, it was a fair playing field. Right. So literally when you look at that chart from 1986, it goes straight up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, so now I'm trying to buy those original comics. I'm willing to pay good money for them if anybody's got them for sale. But I can't pay if Overstreet says it's $18,000. I can't pay somebody $35,000 when right. that same person is selling that book year in and year out and it never sells so you know, don't, don't they you, know it's not worth 35 if nobody's paying for 35 right and you know and, and a lot of people go off of the overstreet but you know in today's world where there's all these different markets you really got to kind of look at okay what's what's sold on ebay what's sold at hakes what's sold at christie's you know what's selling on the internet and then kind of get you know a median price on that and then say okay this is the median price it's selling for 30 here 50 there okay median price is about you know 40 okay this is what i'm willing to pay and then the best thing to do is find you know a local comic shop that has it and then you know try to deal with them a little bit because e- ebay's ebay's tough even going to shows sometimes might be tough but if you go to you know your local comic shop and you kind of you know, negotiate on the price, you'll have a better chance of, of getting something, you know, there, especially if you're paying in cash, you know, and not, 
you know, fake House of the Unusual Eddie money, you know, <laughs> well, you know you, you'll listen, get a lot better. <laughs> what's wrong with my money? Come on, can I make my own money? <laughs> hey, uh, the thing is, I'm going to tell you guys a story, which is very similar to what you said, Joe. In, uh, I think it was, I would say, night. it's got to be 1999 or 2000, because I think it was right before the Y2K thing. Now, remember, eBay started. I think I started on eBay like in 1997, 98, when they were selling Pez dispensers. Yep. And then you, you could go to, I think you had to put the image in photo bucket, and then you would have a link to your website or your eBay selling page, and that's how you sold your items. So, you know, people weren't looking at eBay. People weren't really buying stuff. So I go to this comic book store that was located in Paramus, and it was called Collector's Comics. And I had been going there for like 20 years. Every, you know, every time we went to the mall, my wife went around. I shot right to the comic book store and I stayed there for hours. Um, he had an action comic number 15. And it's up above the table there. You know, and it's in really good condition. I, I would say it was a little more bright. And what I'm saying is, you know, like something like this color, a little bit, you know, yellowish. It wasn't like the regular color of the comic. It was a little faded. But he goes, uh, you're interested, Eddie? And now he had it for, I think, $575. He goes, if you want it, you can have it for $375. So I'm like, yeah, you know, why not? Let me get it. The moment I'm about to get the comic, the wife walks in the door and says, what are you doing? I said, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I didn't know what to say. I said, no, I was going to get this comic. So I try to tell her. You know, which is kind of funny, though, because the question I said to myself is there was a guy working there. He, he, I'm not going to say his name, but I could just totally say idiot, you know, idiot with a plus. I tell my wife it's three dollars and seventy five cents. <laughs> and the idiot says, on the contrary, Eddie, it's three hundred and seventy five. <laughs> and my wife says, don't you dare. I walked away, and I lost the number 15. Ah. Now, honestly, what I said to myself is, this guy's got to be an idiot. He sees what I'm doing. He understands what I'm saying. I'm about to pay him. But the guy comes back and says, "On the, you know, come on. It's like I've so... I felt like telling the guy, dude, you go on. He should know that, you know, it's, it's you know... He, no, I, I think he did it because he's, he's a total idiot. And he's this is the same guy who later on, uh, some old lady walked in there, and he gives her like 40 bucks for some comics that had um, Fantastic Four 1 and 2. And he gave her 40 bucks. I, 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 if I would have known she had that in the bag, I would have bought it. And then he sold the one for like 7,000 bucks. I overheard. But the, the point is, though, is he said that and I, I lost the number. Even though I have, I got to have about, I say, 25,000 or more comic books. I've been by now, the majority of my collection is. Excuse me, Mr. Dave, Mr. The Richie Rich and Casper, because I, I was a big collector of them. I know, but I tell you one thing, my friend. I've paid a lot for those comics. I paid for Casper number one, almost $200 for the first Casper. And then uh, I didn't get Richie Rich. I just got Casper number one. But um, what I was. Oh, I love those old Casper books, man. They're, they're, they're the best. Great. I used to like spooky, hot stuff, the little devil. Yeah, I love those. And then I, I had a couple of Archies, but the majority, what I did get that I got, I, I got a question for the, for this guy right here. If he wants to put himself, you on. put the mic back on, sir, please. I'm, I'm sir? mute, sir. Yeah, thank you. Yes, sir. Is he there? Yeah, he's there. There he goes. The clicking. Todd, did they ever? Now I I don't know this, and I've never really looked. But was there ever a Sea Monkeys comic book? No, there wasn't, but there was a uh, House of Mystery, the Sea Monkeys segment back in the Oh, 70s. really? Yeah. Do you remember what episode that was off offhand? Or I what? Just, I'm sorry, what issue? I'll find it and I'll post it on the site. Well, because okay, I got a bunch of House of Mystery. I almost got the whole run, but I'd like to check that out. I, I, I was uh, wondering if they ever did that. I, I, I think I have that Sea Monkey one, Joe. Do you? I, you know, I figure I know exactly what Todd. We forgot you're you're underwater, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what it sounds clicking. like. I, I just realized that you know you're underwater. We should have known that's the clicking. We're blaming that's the, the microphone. Listen, I think I have the uh, Joe. Give me a couple of uh, hours. Actually, I'm going to check it out because I think it's over here. The House of Mystery with the uh, 
sea monkeys because uh, I was thinking of it for Todd. But uh, what I was going to tell you is that um, with all the comic books we've had and in my collection, the, my favorite comic book that when I started reading it was like the best comic ever made was uh, Gru the Wanderer. Oh, I remember Gru, yeah. The the Conan uh, Conan the Barbarian lookalike. Yeah, yeah, it was like a kind of like a comedy one. Yeah, Sergio Arigonis uh, painted that, and I'm telling you, that comic book, I have every single one of them. Hey, uh, Dave, do you know it did? Um, you remember when Marvel they did those classic? I think it was Marvel did the classics illustrated. Um, sure. Was kind of like um, you know, historical, you know, comic books. Did they ever do anything on the Atocha or anything like that, or? Nope. Anything along similar along those lines? Nothing. No. Nope. I think that would have kind of made a, a an interesting you know story. Maybe starting from when everything was, you know, you know, mine to putting it on the boat to when it was wrecked to the you know the slaves making it off and all. I think that would have made a uh, a neat comic book. And I mean, I I don't know. I've seen some of the ones that they've done over the years. Oh, Joe. Joe, don't uh, don't give away my my future project. He has man. it in mind now. <laughs> hey, yeah, that's, yeah. We should. <laughs> Dave will tell us a story. You'll write it, and Todd will put it on paper. There we you go. Yeah, Todd could We've do all the hard work. Hey, I, I'm going to tell you guys something real quick because we're coming down to about four minutes left in the sh in the shop here. But uh, yeah, but uh, <laughs> but I was going to say to you that there is a gentleman that Cole reached out to me two nights ago. And his name is Chuck. He's a professional magician and has been doing this for like 30, almost 40 years of his life. And he's made a lot of electronic magic things. And one of the things he has that he actually made and he reached out to me is this. This is a magic book that I've sold for many years. It's called um, The Great Leon Miniature Haunted House. And he actually built one. And he's going to be in next week's uh, show here. And he's going to be explaining to us how, you know, he's going to show us a demonstration of Todd, it. We, we, need, we need to talk to him and see if he can make Eddie disappear. For <laughs> Well, no, no, well, first of all, he made it and I want it. I told him I want to buy the one and he's going to sell me that house. <laughs> well, hey, guys, we got we got three minutes left here. So we're going to do our uh, our little um, after show thing here. So we're going to. I uh, just want to let everyone know about the the House of the Unusual website here and talk about it real quick for um, people out there in podcast or YouTube that haven't been to it. Uh, if you go over to houseoftheunusual.com, uh, there's a form on there. You could sign up for the free newsletter uh, by email, and you could also sign up for free on the website, which gives you access to the form where you could always find this guy right down here, Todd, talking about collectibles and sea monkeys. There's a ton, a ton of great information down there and great conversations going on. So, you know, definitely check that out. Uh, also, there's a blog on there where myself, Eddie, and Todd, uh, we, you know, put some different things on there, you know, whatever interests us at the moment. Um, tons of great information on there, good entertainment. Uh, there's also Cryptic Classics blog and uh, uh, Gullible's Babbles blog. <laughs> I don't know what that, I can see with that something. What did that say? I think it was a Tocha Dave. See Dave, a Tocha gold. <laughs> and there's you also. Buy, you, you can buy your golds there. Yeah, yeah you can buy your golds. <laughs> but there's also a, um, a a quick link for the podcast on there too. So if you don't know where to find the podcast, head over to houseunusual.com. Right on the front page is a, um, a quick link to get to the podcast. Um, and if you scroll down on the home page, there's tons of uh, videos on there showing different collections and all that, mostly, you know, of, of Eddie's face. So if you you don't want to see that, you know, you could just keep, you know, scrolling down and check out, you know, some of the other videos. But um, there's also a shop on there, too. So where you could find some of these cool products that we talk about, some of these, you know, old school novelties that are on there or check out um, Eddie's House of the Unusual eBay page. And for those of you listening out in podcast land, check us out on YouTube where you could see uh, our beautiful faces every week and, you know, whatever guests we have on there. <laughs> and, yeah, definitely Todd's and, and and Eddie's and, you know, David's been on here three in a row. I'm sure he'll, he'll definitely be on some more and, you know, all of our different guests. 
And if you want to be a guest on the show or have some great ideas, you know, let us know on the forum. We're always looking for, for new people to be on and um, some new topics. You know, it's all about you guys out there and what you guys want to hear. You know, we're, we're here for you and we love talking about this well, stuff. So definitely. You got to bring something up real quick in 15 seconds. Mr. Dave from Matocha Gold, who has all his connections in the last episode and the connections will be here below really quick. We'll be going over to a new channel we're putting together and he's going to decipher a 40-year-old novelty map that has secret hidden gold, real gold Ooh. treasures on it. And it will be coming up in the next episode. We'll talk more about it. Sounds good. Said, guys, good night. Good night, everyone. Thanks good for night, coming. All.